Well, I invite you to please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We will be reading verses 1 to 17. So we learn today about progressive sanctification, how our gracious Heavenly Father changes us and makes us like His Son. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. This is the living word of Christ, as Paul calls it in this passage. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. In your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Pray with me. Father, we come to you through the Lord Jesus Christ and ask that you would use your means of grace, the preach word, and all of the other means of grace to make us like your son. Make this time useful to that end, which is your plan for all of us, that we would be made like Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. This is the second sermon 
in our two-part series on sanctification. Last week, we saw that one of the implications of the Genesis 3.15 promise of the offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, coming to crush the head of the serpent, destroying the devil's works, one of those implications was Christ rescuing us from the guilt and condemnation of sin, what we call justification. But it also includes Christ rescuing us from the enslaving power of sin in sanctification. Christ setting us apart from sin. In Christ, we have both forgiveness and change. But we learn that sanctification is like a two-sided coin. It has both a definitive, once-for-all aspect, that side A of the coin, and it also has a progressive, ongoing process, side B of the coin, what we call progressive sanctification. We established last week from Romans 6, 6, that in our union with Christ, we have been set free from the enslaving, controlling, addictive power of sin once for all. We can never be slaves again to sin. But today we're going to focus on side B of the coin, the second aspect of sanctification. In our union with Christ, the Holy Spirit progressively, day by day, conforms us into the image of Christ. And so our main point, our main idea, is that in Christ, we put off the old man ways as he daily renews us in his image. And that's seen in these four Ps. Again, this is in honor of my son, Timmy Brindle. He has to eat as many Ps as his age. He's four. He has to eat four Ps. Means dad has to eat 40 Ps. By the way, I have a four-piece sermon for you. First, we ponder our union with Christ. We put off old man ways. We put on who we are in Christ, and we do this through the powerful means of grace. And I want you to look with me at these four points and notice the verses there in parentheses. The focus is that living out of our union with Christ enables us and empowers us to put off the old ways of the old man. And as we put off, we also put on. Sanctification is not just putting off, putting to death. It's also putting on. And we put on who we are in Christ, the new man. And God has provided for us his means of grace to work that out in our lives. So our first point is to ponder union with Christ. What do I say union with Christ? Well, notice the underlined phrases in this first section. With Christ. With Christ. With him. Paul and the other New Testament writers talk about our union with Christ hundreds of times in the New Testament. Oftentimes, the terminology is in Christ, in him. But oftentimes, it's with Christ. What Christ has done, we have done also in him. Because our representative, 
died. We've died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. And so Paul wants us to fix our minds, fix our thoughts on our union with Christ. Notice Paul begins with if. If then. Paul is not wanting us to question if we're in Christ, but if here has the sense of since. Since it's true. Since you've been raised with Christ, now do these things. Because you have resurrection power to obey God's commands. And what are the two commands given? Notice here in red, we're called to seek the things that are above, in verse 1, which gets unpacked and explained as setting our minds on the things above. The Greek force here has the sense of a, a continue to seek, continue to set your minds, keep seeking, keep setting your minds. Well, we should set our minds or ponder and think upon with wonder and awe what in particular? The things above. This is not a pie-in-the-sky theology. Just think about random stuff in heaven. Ooh, streets of gold and cherubim that look like fat babies with wings, even though Isaiah 6 describes them very differently. No, the above things are defined by this, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And so the things above that we must keep seeking, and this word for seeking means to desire, and what we must keep pondering, these things above is Christ, the King, and the things that are ours in his new creation kingdom. How can we tell? Because in the Greek, it's the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, and he is seated at the right hand of God, echoing back to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, my Adonai, my King, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool for your feet. The Lord Jesus Christ has come. He has lived a perfect life on our behalf. He has died in our place, not only to suffer the wrath of God and save us from the penalty of sin and hell, but to set us free from sin's addictive, controlling power. He's been raised from the dead, and he's ascended. And because his work is done, he has sat down at the right hand of God. What Paul has in view is what we heard in our call to worship. Every blessing... God has blessed us with spiritual blessings, capital S spirit, blessings. They're ours in Christ where? In the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Why are our blessings of salvation such as justification, forgiveness of sins, adoption, the fact we're children of God, and sanctification, why are those blessings said to be in the heavenly places? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is in the heavenly places. And they are secure in him. So Paul wants us to set our minds and to set our thoughts and to ponder who Christ is as the ascended Christ who has been endowed with the Holy Spirit and has poured the Spirit out upon us, united us to himself so that all that's Christ's is ours. Every blessing of salvation. To sum it up, now that we've been raised with Christ, 
we must seek and desire and ponder and set our minds upon Christ and all of the saving benefits that are ours in him. But notice we're told not to set our minds on things that are upon earth. Set your minds on things that are above, verse 2, not on things that are on earth. Paul does not have in mind that you cannot think about anything that happens in this life on earth. No. Remember, Paul has a, a two-age eschatology. There's this age and the age to come. There's this world and there's the heavenly new creation. There's in Adam and there's in Christ. Things upon earth is the fallen in Adam, enslaved to sin, cursed world order under the enslavement of Satan. The heavenly things above where Christ is are Christ's new creation, new world order. And we're not there yet in its fullness, but it's already begun in us through our union with Christ. And Paul gives the reason for why. Why we must set our, thing, our minds on Christ and not on things on earth, and it's given in verse 3. For, because you have died. When you died with Christ, the cross catapulted you out from this old world, the things that are on earth, and he's brought you out from being an Adam, and now you're a part of his new world, his new creation kingdom. So progressive sanctification occurs as we seek Christ, which means to desire Christ and continue to set our minds on him, ponder who Jesus is in who we are in him. And as we behold him, as we behold his glory in the scriptures, we are transformed, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And notice the centrality of the mind for our transformation. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What you think about, what you set your minds upon. What is it that you ponder and think upon? brothers and sisters. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace, but the mind set on the flesh is death, Paul says in Romans 8. But there is a weird in-between in which I'm tempted to pull out my phone every 30 minutes to check the baseball scores. And there's nothing inherently evil in that. But we are in a culture and in a day and age where there is so much distraction with iPhones or Androids, if you're like me, holding out against the, the wave of the Mac. Computers, phones, and movies. And there is so much temptation for us to not just sit and meditate and think about Christ and what he's done and who he is now and who we are in him. At least do that on the Lord's day. At least shut off the phones. 
at least don't be in, entangled in your email on the Lord's Day. At least don't get caught up in your work. But think upon Christ, the ascended Christ, in your union with him. That is what your life is all about. That is true life. Look at verse 3. For because, this is the fact, you have died, and as a result, your life, your true life, who you really are, is hidden with Christ in God. The real you is hidden in Christ. This word hidden here means guarded, safeguarded, secured. Who you and I are in Christ is secure. It can never be destroyed or lost. It's not only safe in Christ, it's in God the Father also. With Christ in God. So who are we in Christ? Verse 1 is clear. We are those who have been raised up with Christ already spiritually, yet not yet physically. Verse 3, we are those who have died with Christ. Verse 12, name some of our identities in Christ. God's chosen one, his elect ones, his holy ones. Already we're his holy ones, his beloved ones in the beloved son. And yet who we truly and really are in Christ won't be fully revealed until Jesus comes back. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who by the way is your life, appears, then at that time, you also will appear with him in glory. When he appears, we will become like him because we'll see him as he is. And so this process, this lifelong process of changing us into the likeness and image of Christ will not be complete until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. And it's in that time we'll be glorified with Christ. Now when scripture talks about we'll appear with him in glory, it's not saying we'll share his divine ontological glory that only the Father, Son, and Spirit have in which they deserve all praise and honor and glory. They alone are glorified in that sense. But as Jesus, the Messiah, our brother, he shares his glory, his resurrection life with us. Notice Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things are working together for this process for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. What's his purpose, Paul? Verse 29, namely for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, Paul, where's sanctification? It's there. It's the beginning of glorification, but it's the not yet. Remember, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another, but that transformation in degrees of glory will be completed at the second coming 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have our sanctification timeline. We saw last week definitive sanctification, which occurred the moment we got saved. When we were born again, when we were united to Christ, once for all there was a breach, a decisive breach from sin's enslaving, dominating, addicting power over us. But that set forth in motion this big blue arrow. The process, the lifelong process of sanctification. And it's going upward from one degree of glory to another. Progressive sanctification, the lifelong process of being conformed to the image of Christ. And that process will be completed when? Glorification. And notice, there's a little bit of a gap between the end of the arrow and that final dot. Why is that? Well, Hebrews chapters 12, verse 23, talks about the moment we go to heaven, our spirits, without our bodies, if we die before Christ comes back, our spirits go immediately to heaven, and they're perfected. There's a sense in which our spirits are perfected. They're glorified. They're completely perfect. No more sin. But it's without the body. And glorification is only used for the bodily resurrection, the fullness of glory. It's when we're raised up with Christ, when those perfected spirits that were in heaven are joined to these bodies that become glorious. Resurrection, never to die again, glory bodies. That's when the process of sanctification has its complete end. When you die and go to heaven, yes, but the fullness is when Jesus comes back. But we're not glorified yet, are we? Until then, the Lord has a lifelong process in which he actually calls us to participate in this process of sanctification. He calls us, our second point, to put off the ways that belong to our old man. Put off old man ways. The things that no longer define you, we saw last week, the things that you're no longer enslaved to, put them off. You see in verses 5 through 9. Put to death, therefore. The idea of the therefore is, since you've already died to sin's enslaving power and been raised with Christ in newness of life, therefore, you must do all of the P words that are underlined there in the text. Put to death sin, verse 5. Put away sin, verse 8. Put off old ways that belong to the old man, verse 9. Since the cross has set you free from the enslavement of sin and you've been raised with Christ, put off the sinful lifestyle of the old world, which you no longer belong to. But wait. I thought we learned last week that Christ has crucified the old man, that he's destroyed the body of sin, which is the human body dominated and controlled by sin. Yes, amen. Glad you're taking notes. However, although we're already set free from sin's enslaving power, we are not yet completely set free from sin's presence. These bodies are no longer the body of sin controlled by sin, but there's still sin in these bodies. And for that reason, 
because Christians still have the temptation and capacity to sin, we need this command, put to death what is earthly in you. Although the body of sin is destroyed, so you can't be a slave to using your body to sin, you're called to put to death sinful desires and practices that belong to your former way of life. And what are they? We see them in gold in this first list. Notice this first list of sins. Paul, he loves sin lists. He also loves fruit of the spirit lists and new man lists, which we'll see. But Paul has this set of sin lists. And they're often very similar in Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5. Ephesians 4, that is. 1 Corinthians 6. But oftentimes he lumps them together in ways that they're related to each other. So we might call this the behaviors related to pleasure. We see sexual sin and covetousness, which is idolatry. These are the lustful passions list. They have to do with God replacements, pleasure idols. Instead of finding satisfaction in Christ, we're tempted to find satisfaction in these idols. And notice covetousness, which is idolatry, it reminds us of the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. Referring to desiring and craving things in a way that you make a God out of them, which brings us right back to the first commandment. But it's interesting that covetousness and idolatry is so connected to the sexual sins. One commentator says, covetousness being linked to the list of preceding sexual sins, shows how people's ever-increasing desire for more and more pleasure, especially sexual pleasure, is nothing other than idolatry. And isn't that rampant in this day and age? And it's all around us. And Paul says, put it to death, any of its remnants in you. The first thing mentioned, sexual immorality. Paul usually starts his sin lists with sexual sin. This word, porneia, which has porn as its root, summarizes all sexual activity outside of marriage. God created sex. He made it very good for one man and one woman to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. It reflects his good pleasure and his creative power as we are fruitful and multiply as a result sometimes. But sexual immorality consists of fornication, sex before marriage, adultery, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, pornography, masturbation, sexual and romantic fantasies, things which males and females can find themselves entangled in. Males and females. And this next word, impurity, means filthiness. It's the opposite of holiness and purity. And it's often used back-to-back with sexual immorality four times in Paul's writings. And covetousness is often close by as well. But notice in this first list, It's not just the activity or the acting out which we're to put to death. It's the desire. Put to death 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Don't just stop acting out. Put to death the desires when they come in your mind. Well, in case you feel left out with your sin struggles, Paul has more, which we see in the next list, consisting of rage, anger sins. And in case you forgot what you're to do with them, we see again in verse 8 another putting away, put them all away type uh, command there. But anger and wrath here is unlike God's holy, righteous anger. God's holy wrath is different than our sinful wrath, our sinful anger, which has murder at its root, according to Jesus in Matthew 5. We're not going to have time to zoom in on all of these, but I want you to look carefully at malice. Anger, wrath, malice. What is malice? A mean-spirited or vicious attitude, having ill will, that holds grudges and has malignity, when you maliciously desire bad things to happen to others, when you are really happy to see them suffer pain and distress. Now we can try to keep this nasty, rageful malice deep in our hearts, but notice the next sins mentioned after that, it usually comes out in our speech. Mentioned next is slander. An obscene talk from our mouths. So, how can we tell who we have malice against? Who do we slander and talk about behind their backs? We slander with our mouths. It becomes obscene, filthy speech, which gets all summed up in verse 9 with lying. Do not lie to one another. Because at the end of the day, the works of the flesh and the dominated by sin in Adam lifestyle, it's bound up in lies. Their father is the devil. And he's the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. So in summary, whether it's sexual sin and idolatry, based on deceitful lying pleasures or anger-based speech sins, they're all rooted in lies, and they must be put to death. Now, in definitive sanctification, we saw last week, we were completely passive. Our old man was crucified together with Christ. God himself transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We didn't contribute anything to that except our sin. But in progressive sanctification, in this lifelong process of, yes, God, by grace, by faith, making us like Christ, we do participate. We do cooperate. So the text says, therefore, you must put these sins to death. Literally in the Greek, verse 8, you yourselves must put them all away. You do it. But I thought God was going to do it. 
Yes, you do it. But isn't the Lord going to do it? Yes, but he calls you to do it with him. John Murray says, in progressive sanctification, the believer is enlisted in this process. There's a draft, a military draft. You've been called. Not Uncle Sam. The Lord Jesus Christ wants you in the army of the Lord. You're a part of it. It's too late. You've been drafted, and you can't get out of the draft. Although there's been a definitive death to sin alluded to in Colossians 3.3, the believer is not so delivered from sin and its lust and defilement, but that he needs to be, check this out, actively engaged in the business of the slaughterhouse with reference to his own sins. We are called to be actively engaged in the business of the slaughterhouse when it comes to sin and its desires. And so we're not to play with these sins. Paul uses extremely violent language. He uses warfare terminology. Put to death the earthly things that belong to your former in-Adam lifestyle. Paul here is using language that reminds us of God's command for Israel to go into the land of promise and execute his judgment upon the wicked and idolatrous, gross, immoral, baby-killing, sexually immoral demon worshipers. But now, we're not called to kill other people who practice those things. Jesus will judge them on the last day. Instead, we're called to kill the desires and practices of those things in us in this new covenant era. And this idea of the business of the slaughterhouse, it reminds us of the Genesis 3.15 promise that God has promised to put enmity between the woman and her offspring, that's Christ and us, against the serpent and against the kingdom of Satan. Christ has put enmity in war in our hearts against sin. But he has not left us alone to do it on our own. This begs the question, is progressive sanctification accomplished then by 50% God and 50% us? No. The Lord calls you to 100% effort by faith in his promises and you will see it's 100% him. Recall what we learned in Philippians chapter 2. You, you must work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Command. Because it's God who's working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the way Paul thought. By the grace of God I am what I am. I can't take credit for it. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, any of the other disciples. But it was not I. It was the grace of God that is with me. So Paul, was it you or Christ? Yes. But ultimately, he gets the glory because he is the one who gives me the desire. 
He's the one who wills and works for his good pleasure. But that doesn't happen apart from our being enlisted in the warfare and actively putting sin to death. Notice back in Colossians 3, we have many reasons why these lifestyles of sin and their desires are to be put to death and put away and put off. And the first reason is seen in verse 6. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back as the Lion of Judah to judge image bearers, to judge people, to judge all humanity who are outside of Christ for these things. And if you are not in Christ this morning, if you have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is coming upon you for your sin. And these sin lists are your resume already. And the only way out is down to cry out to Christ, run to Christ, who has suffered the wrath of God already for all his people on the cross and been raised from the dead. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Sin's curse in terms of its guilt and judgment, but sin's curse in light of its enslaving power as well. He will set you free. We have another reason in verse 5. Because these are the things in which you formerly walked. That phrase we saw in Ephesians 2 too. That was our old lifestyle when we were dead in our sins, following Satan and the lies of this world. But now, God made you alive with Christ. And the last reason why we must put sin to death is because notice, in verse 9, the old self, the old man, has already been put off. Interesting that Paul uses the past tense there seeing that you have already put off the old man. Oh, I did? I put off the old man already? How did that happen? When Christ put off the old man. Paul intentionally uses the same verb that we find in Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In him, in Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And what was that circumcision, Paul? It was by putting off the body of the flesh that's the body of sin we saw in Romans 6.6. 6, by the circumcision of Christ. Christ did it at his death. It was the ultimate circumcision being cut off in judgment. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful work of God who raised him from the dead. So since the Lord Jesus Christ has already put off the old man in his death, we're called to put it off also. Indeed, we have, and daily, we continue to apply the death and resurrection of Christ. And so what does it mean to put off? Because here, we're given the past tense in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. You have put off the old man, but in Ephesians 4, he actually gives it a command. You must put off the old man. So what's it mean to put it off? It means to make a daily choice to depart from the practices of the old man, to continue to live that life 
style, that entire lifelong process of repentance, continuing to turn away from the things that no longer define us or enslave us. This command in Colossians 3.5 is quite similar to what Paul says in Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is how we kill sin, Christians. This is how we put sin to death. It's by the Spirit. By the Spirit brings into view by the word of the Spirit. The Spirit works with his word which he's given. By the Spirit brings into view the one who united you to Christ. And because you're in Christ, guess what? He dwells in you by his Spirit. So notice a couple verses before that in Romans 8, 10, and 11. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. We have resurrection power in us by the Spirit. And the Spirit works through prayer. When we're tempted, we can ask the Holy Spirit for the resurrection power of Christ. And as we resist the devil, he will flee. And yet we're called to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Close off avenues for sin. That's what Jesus means in Matthew 5, by cutting off the hand and plucking out the eye if it causes you to sin. Close the doors that are snares and temptations for you. And as we'll see later, we kill sin by repenting of it and confessing it and turning to Christ. But especially in view, in verse 9 and 10, is replacing, putting off the practices of the old man, and they get replaced with ways of the new man. Put off, but don't stop there. Also put on. This is very important. I spent years in my early Christian life putting such a focus on putting off and putting to death, but I didn't put on. I didn't replace the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. For every work of the flesh that the Lord calls you to put off and put away, there is a corresponding opposite fruit of the Spirit to replace it. And it says in verse 10, we have put on the new man, the new self, the new man. That's Christ and all in him, his new humanity. But I want to zoom in on the fact that the new man is being renewed, progressively, continually being renewed. That's progressive sanctification. We've been made new, but we're being more and more and more made new. This word is found also in 2 Corinthians 4.16. We do not lose heart, though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. The Lord is changing us daily, even when it doesn't feel like it. It's what his word 
selbst. Well, how is he renewing us? He's renewing us in knowledge. It's in terms of knowledge. What's the root word for knowledge? To know. This is a personal knowledge. To know Christ. As we get to know Christ. Information about Christ? Yes. Is it an intellectual knowledge? That's a part of it. And it's a personal, relational, worshipful, covenantal knowledge. As we know Christ, we're being renewed after the image. That means according to the pattern of, conformed to the image of its creator, the creator. The creator of what? The creator of the new man. And this brings into view Genesis 1.26. God created man in his image. True knowledge is based on the image of God. But when Adam was created in God's image, he was called to live out that image, to demonstrate true knowledge. Where was he supposed to do that at? At the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But he sinned. He shattered the image of God on behalf of all humanity. True knowledge, holiness, and righteousness is lost. But praise God for the second Adam. The offspring of the woman, he came to do what Adam failed to do. Jesus did not just come to restore us back into the image of God that Adam was created with. No, that was able to fall and die. Christ is the advanced image of God to glory. He's passed the test at the tree of the cross, a different tree. And he's gone ahead. After going through the flaming sword, he's gone to resurrection glory, partaken of the tree of life, representing eternal life. And he bestows true life, eternal life, which is to know the Lord upon us. We're being conformed to the image of Christ, the glory man. Christ Jesus. Here, here, verse 11, there is not Greek and Jew. Here, in Christ, there's not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 11 consists of several pairs of ethnic and socioeconomic polar opposites, usually according to human categories, which no longer define them ultimately, primarily, as Christ's new creation people. Greek, synonymous with Gentile. But did you know that there were Greek Gentiles? And then there were barbarian Gentiles and Scythian Gentiles who were super Gentiles to the Gentiles. Barbarians were considered to be uncouth peoples who did not speak Greek and lived outside of the Greek regions, living in the far south of the earth. Acts 
Africans, Arabians, barbarians to the Greeks. But Scythians, that refers to the super uncultured people living in the far north of the world. The Germanic and Slavic and Gaelic peoples. My descendants. Y'all are dirty and unclean and uncultured and uncivilized and inferior, and so are y'all, according to the Greeks. And Paul goes beyond these lowest forms of social culture to the Greeks, and there's the economic polar opposites, slave and free. And guess what? Even though we retain biblical ethnic identities, all of these man-made, according to the flesh categories, are destroyed in Christ. Christ is all, and he's in all. Listen to what Dr. Beale says. Dr. G.K. Beale, my professor at Westminster. Sorry, I'm talking about him like I know him, because I do. Praise the Lord. In the new creation... There are no nationalistic or racial distinctions that determine a person's ultimate identity. That'll get you shot nowadays. The only determiner of that identity is that new sphere is Christ. In that new sphere is Christ. That Christ is all things means that he exhausts all there is in the new creation in its inaugurated phase, the fact that it's already begun, inaugurated. In fact... The only person in the new creation, the renewed new man, is Christ. Others are there only as they've been incorporated into him. Therefore, if one wants to be in that new creation, that person must be in Christ. That Christ is in all means that those who are in the new creation have Christ dwelling in each one. Now there's a nuclear bomb for CRT written 2,000 years ago. in other forms of identity politics and cultural Marxism that tries to keep us bound to man-made, human according to the flesh distinctions. Christ destroys them, and there's a beautiful oneness. Yes, there's a diversity. Every tribe, tongue, and nation surrounded together around the throne. And now Paul resorts again to who you are in Christ for this next command in verse 12. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on, but wait, before I tell you what to put on, let me remind you who you are again. Who are you? You are God's elect, holy, beloved ones. Chosen before the foundation of the world because he wanted you. Elect, chosen. Holy, you're already holy and you're being made holy and you're his beloved ones. This word is the plural form of the singular, the beloved. This is my son, the beloved, my beloved son. And my love for you, son, is the same for all of those in you. We have the love of the father for his son overflowing upon us. That's our identity. And therefore, because that's who you are, Put on these things. 
These are the new man things. We saw put on in verse 10, but put on these specific things. And what's the first thing mentioned? Compassionate hearts. Wow, all the things Paul could have told us about the new man to put on first. He says put on compassionate hearts. Why did he mention that first? Could be. Because this word compassion is used 12 times in the Gospels for the Lord Jesus Christ. For his deep-seated, tender mercy and compassion toward broken, sinful, enslaved, suffering people. Like you and me before we were in him. Put on the heart of Christ is what he's saying. Remember the Father's making us like Christ. And Paul also knows it's kind of hard to lust after another image bearer or be rageful and want to murder them in your heart. It's hard to want to treat them as a sexual object and dehumanize them or to have malicious ill will against them when you have a heart of compassion for them. Compassion is put on in the place of lust and rage. What's the next new man traits? Kindness, humility, and meekness. Hard to be stuck in selfishness when you're putting on Christ's selflessness. His kind, meek humility that serves others. Put on patience. Literally in the Greek, it's macro passion. Long passion, long suffering, which juxtaposes with lustful passion earlier on. Opposite of lustful passion and angry passion is long passion, long suffering, patience, where we endure with one another and forgive one another. If you have a complaint against another, you slander them. No. If you have a complaint against another, you forgive them just as Christ forgave you. And above all these things, what ties them all together, in fact, the only attributes and qualities that are there are those that first come under the heading of love. Verse 14, and above all these, put on love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And fill in the blank. Love sums them up. Love completes them. Love perfects them. Love embodied in Christ's sacrificial giving of himself overflows through us as we serve one another, binding everything as the bond of perfection, similar to Colossians 2.2. When Paul said that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Where we encourage one another who we are in Christ. And so progressive sanctification, brothers and sisters, is completely selfless and concerned about the progressive sanctification of others. I actually become more like Christ when I encourage you and love on you and build you up and serve you. 
Paul assumes we have the ability to put these things on. Paul calls us by the Spirit now to be who we are, all of Street PCA. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't make it a difficult formula. You've been raised up with Christ, now be who you are. And yet he knows we'll stumble. And we can tell from verse 13. We will need others to show us the same grace Christ has shown us. We'll need to show the same forgiving grace to others that Christ has shown us. The Lord had a complaint against us. It was condemnation in the eternal sentence for cosmic treason. And what did he do with that complaint? He took it upon himself. And he doesn't bring it up again. He doesn't mention it. He's canceled the record of debt. I love that cancel culture in the kingdom. He's canceled the debt that stood against us. He's not going to bring it up again. Forgive each other like that. And he's given us the means of grace to do it. Put off the old ways and put on who we are in Christ by his powerful, precious provision of his means of grace. Notice verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Peace of Christ comes from verse 16, the word of Christ dwelling in us. And so in our fights against anxiety and worry, the peace of Christ will win because Christ has reconciled us to the Father and brought peace between us and the Father and his spirit gives us that fruit deep in our souls. But notice that the peace of Christ is that which we've been called to in one body. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which. Now the which there in the Greek is in the feminine case. And so the antecedent feminine before that is peace, arene. The peace of Christ is that which we've been called to in one body, the church. We've been called to the church. In the church, there's the new creation, kingdom reign of Christ's peace. And he's given his church the means of grace to change us. How are you going to grow in progressive sanctification? Go to church. And be a member of a church. Paul assumes the way we encourage one another is we're in community together. The way that we receive the teaching and the admonishment of the elders is we actually submit to their care. And so Christ has provided everything we need for life in godliness. What are the means of grace for the things that Christ uses to make us like him? Acts 2.42, we have a nice list of the means of grace. And they, that's the, the early church disciples, they devoted themselves, they were committed to these things in a continuous way to what? The apostles' teaching. It's the word of God. And to the fellowship not just fellowship with each other, but the fellowship. Worship with Christ and their covenant fellowship relationship with him. To the breaking of bread. There's the Lord's Supper and the sacraments. And to the prayers. These are the things that Jesus uses to make us like Christ. And Paul mentions them. Notice, it's the word of Christ. Christ. 
the word of Christ. Is that the word that Christ speaks, the word from Christ, Christ's word? Or is it the word about Christ? Yes. And Paul is writing the New Testament under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he still calls the whole Bible the word of Christ. Because Jesus, as the Son of God, along with the Father and the Spirit, is not only the author, but he's the subject. It's all about the Genesis 3.15 promise. The offspring of the woman is the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of David, who has come to save his people. That's the Bible. And so when you read the Bible, it's not the word of Tim, or it's not the word about you, it's the word about Christ. When you see Christ in the word, you're made like him. The word of Christ, proclaimed especially on the Lord's day, and as we encourage one another, teaching and admonishing one another. And then there's the fellowship, worship, and celebration of Christ in song. Notice this focus in 16, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But you say, but I'm a bad singer. I can't sing too good. Notice it says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Okay, I'll just sing quietly in my heart. That's not what Paul necessarily means. In fact, with thankfulness in your heart can be translated with thankfulness with your heart. Jesus knows you can't sing. But he loves a thankful heart. And notice the centrality of thankfulness. Thankfulness, thankfulness. This section has thankfulness as its bun at the top in verse 15, as the meat in the middle in 16, and as the bottom bun. Give thanks, be thankful, give thanks with thankfulness. How do you become like Jesus? Thank him for who he is and what he's done. And Colossians 4, 2 makes clear to be steadfast in prayer with thanksgiving. So prayer assumes thanksgiving. And so I conclude with this. Everything we do, do it through him. Through him. He brings us back to the first point, union with Christ. In Christ, brothers and sisters, we have been set free from the enslaving power of sin but in Christ, we're empowered more and more to put off the old ways and become who we truly are. And we do it through the means of grace. And he knows your struggle. And he knows it's at times a messy battle. But we have his precious promises. And I am sure of this. I'm confident. I know it, that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, we praise you that you are making us holy, that you have already begun, and you will not stop, Lord. Even we can't stop that process. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray for your people who are discouraged this morning, who feel like they're not changing, that they would look to Christ, who's resurrected and ascended and has accomplished all saving benefits for them. Lord, help them to look to who they are in Jesus and to see your precious promises 
And you will give them the strength to do war against sin and to put on who they really are in Christ. We thank you, God, that you cannot lie. You promise to do it and you will because you're faithful. In Jesus' name.